everyone. I hope you're safe and sound during this difficult and challenging time. As I record this, it's April 12th, and my guest on today's episode of the podcast about Rosemary's Baby is Ted Jessup a television comedy writer, producer, and performer. Ted has been a producer and a writer for National Geographic Television, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, The Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn, Seth MacFarlane, VH1, MTV, and The Al Franken Show, among others. Most recently, he was a writer on Family Guy and Roseanne. Ted also appeared in the Steven Soderbergh film, The Girlfriend Experience. Ted and I met while he was a writer and performer for my company, Meeting House Productions, on a series we had an inordinate amount of fun producing called World's Dumbest a show whose blend of high and low comedy was perfect for dollops of Ted's reliably dark and brilliantly twisted jokes. When you're putting together a writer's room for a comedy series, a lot of times you have a bunch of writers in the room who reliably contribute the more obvious jokes that would be made about any given scenario or situation. And you need those writers. But you also need writers like Ted who would perhaps contribute one joke, but that joke would be so brilliantly, twistedly funny that it could come from no other comedic mind than Ted's. Ted also appeared in a much talked about web series we did called Newsmasters, a spoof of Sunday morning chat show pundits and their often clueless and mindless banter. It was brilliantly funny in no small part because of Ted's on-the-fly ad-libs and deep character takes. And it also featured legendary Saturday Night Live writer Jim Downey, another comedic genius, as well as Chelsea Peretti and Billy Kimball, a two-time Emmy Award winner for Veep and a longtime Simpsons and SNL writer. You can see Ted in Newsmasters on YouTube portraying Kevin Carmichael, a former speechwriter for, wait for it, Mike Dukakis. See, it's funny already. Ted's a wonderful guy with really interesting friends, and for his appearance this week on the pod, he selected a darkly funny and brilliantly complicated movie in Rosemary's Baby. So here's my conversation with Ted Jessup about Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Ted, welcome to the Full Caster Crew podcast. Thrilled to have you here. Oh my God, my pleasure, old friend. You have a couple fascinating crossovers in your life to two episodes we've done already on the podcast, which I want to ask you about. You probably don't know what they are, but I'm going to tell you. The first is that we did High Noon on the podcast, uh-huh. which is a brilliant movie, allegory for the red-baiting red uh, communist hunt of the 50s. And your uncle, Philip Jessup, was caught up in all of that. Can you tell me a little bit about him and, and what you know about that story? Well, he was sort of distinguished jurist and international diplomat, Philip Jessup, and uh, he was my grandfather's brother. He defended Alger Hiss, and also, you know, he was responsible for lifting the Berlin Wall blockade and stuff. And he was ambassador to the UN, but he was he was called out by McCarthy and called a red. We have a great newspaper at home, the Washington Star, from the time that says Jessup's a red. In, uh, <laughs> bold letters. No. And he was bemused by that. Yeah. He was highly distinguished and uh, a good friend and colleague of Dean Atchison, all those old waspy, you know, statecraft people. Sure. Uh, And then my father was a diplomat too. Right. And when you then, when you were writing for Family Guy, you did 12 and a half Angry Men, the episode. was a movie with Jennifer Lopez that did not live up to expectations. Well, Mayor West did say he never saw the letter, and he was under oath. Yeah, he lied. Of course he lied. He's a politician. They're all liars. Yeah, John F. Kennedy swore he'd serve a full four-year term. Liar. Another, that's another movie that we did on the podcast, Lumet's 12 Angry Men, which I love. What was your process of preparing to do a parody of that sort for a show like that? 
obviously I'd seen it kind of 50 times. So selecting the kind of key moments that people remember. And then nowadays it's semi-obscure. So I had to fight to parody sort of memorable moments that others argued weren't memorable at all, (laughs) you know. No, Ted, um, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Having worked with you, I can't imagine you had any super minutia obscurities that you wanted to single out. But yeah, that's another movie that's about sort of mob rule. You know, much like you know the '50s invasion of the body snatchers or whatever. These allegories for right. sort of communist takeover and a kind of strange disease. Fuck. That's your girlfriend not being denied the texts. Hi, I'm doing a podcast, so I'll have to call you back. <laughs> okay thanks bye-bye <laughs> whoever that uh, is is gonna think you're so cool now ted really a podcast a podcast wow my mother doesn't know what a podcast is but she barely <laughs> she's 97 and she barely acknowledged television <laughs> she would ask me for 40 years what i was doing like what exactly are you doing are you holding the camera and finally no, i was mom. like when i was like eight years on family guy she was like I don't understand. You don't draw cartoons. <laughs> like I'm writing the jokes. So, well, you know. <laughs> so are you a lover of Rosemary's Baby? Oh, my God. I've been going down a Polanski wormhole of late. I read uh, the most recent book that just came out about the making of Chinatown, which I really recommend, and watched Chinatown a couple of times for that. And then I watched Rosemary's twice in preparation for this and just have the utmost appreciation for it almost more so. I mean, I'm a Chinatown. I love it's, it's like a touchstone because I love crime. I love noir. I love neo noir, but Rosemary's baby might be one of the most impressive movies I've ever seen for a lot of different reasons, but yes, I'm a big fan of it. When did you first encounter it? Early, early, like before my teens, um, you know, I, I don't really like horror that's supernatural, but this is about so many other horrific fears that humans have than just this sort of denouement. Then, mm-hmm. you know, the final payoff, you totally accept because they've built up this, you know, highway of other kinds of paranoia, you know, of not being believed, you know, women's lib, which was growing at the time being sort of thwarted, you know, people that that appear to be benign and innocent, and in fact, on your side are helpful, you know, are, are kind of evil, bad people, part of the conspiracy. So yeah, no, I think I probably saw it when I was about nine or 10. <laughs> and I'd stayed away from horror movies. You know, we had the TV on all the time in our basement in Chevy Chase, where I grew up. I remember my first horror trauma was the movie Caged with Eleanor Parker. Have you ever seen that noir? <laughs> yes. It's a women's prison film. Yes. Where I came down to see, you know, it's got this one sort of incredible scene where, you know, there's a, there's a very terrifying sort of bull dyke matron. Mm-hmm. who abuses everybody. Home sweet home. Just like the big cage in the zoo, only you clean it up instead of the keeper. Bucket and brushes in the corner closet. And Eleanor Parker, who later plays, you know, the Baroness in Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. But this is when she's young and innocent. And she's grabbed by the matron and strapped down in a chair and her mouth is duct taped and they shave her head. <laughs>
um, I remember coming downstairs crying, and you know my That's parents. Got, oh, who let him watch that? <laughs> when I was ten, I was sent to a sort of old waspy camp, um, Camp Monadnock in New Hampshire. Sure. After a week there, like twenty of us kids were summoned to a barn. And we were like, well, you know, what are we doing here? This is weird. And there was a little chair in the middle of the room and like six counselors. Mm -hmm. And then it dawned on us that we were the only long haired kids in the camp. And a little Italian barber came in and we were held down. It was like a scene from Schindler's List or something. Kids screaming, I want to call my mom. And they shaved all our heads like in in caged. But uh, and my parents were nowadays, you just have lawsuits. But my parents were just... Well, if that's what Mr. Ernst thinks is the rule, I think you should. So I sort of stayed away for a while till I caught this. You know, my father's a diplomat overseas and they always had film clubs and the embassy always showed um, horror films, you know, spaghetti westerns and weird sort of hip mm -hmm. things like Zabriskie Point and stuff. Yeah. So starting at 10, 11 and 12, I was watching, you know, eight or nine movies a week because that was sort of all you could do. But so Rosemary's Baby, I saw early and was mm -hmm. totally traumatized. You know, it's such a great New York movie. It's yeah. such a great lost New York movie where like mm -hmm. a sort of, you know, arty, creative couple, the guy's an actor and, you know, can can have access to an apartment in a building like the Dakota. Yeah. <laughs> just like, you know, the Bramford is, uh, you know, this is quite reasonable. And it's just, you know, this cavernous castle. And they're shown it by the sort of super, and he wears a suit. How good um, is Elijah Cook Jr. in that Elijah role? Cook Jr., you know, from Maltese Falcon and Shane, who's uh, just sort of obsequious and kind of, that's strange. That's odd. There's a closet behind that, Secretary. I'm sure there is. Yeah, oh, I think you're right. But he also has this detachment from them, which I think is so New York. He doesn't care about them at all. He's not engaged. He's got this weird remove so early in the movie where like Cassavetes keeps like kind of brushing into his personal space and kind of touching him inadvertently. And Elijah Cook Jr. sort of withdraws from him and is sort of just sort of like in his own universe in a way that's such a great like setup for what's to come. It's great the way they impose just little bits of weirdness. Yes. Um, you know, that actor who plays the elevator operator who's in Dolmite. When he looks around the corner at, when he's closing the elevator. <laughs> yeah, just sort of wide-eyed and suspicious so acting. So the, the scene is set for weirdness. I remember thinking Elisha Cook, you know, the first five or six times I saw it was a real estate agent. And then when Terry, the kind of first potential yeah. sort of birth mother of uh, the cast of Ets, uh, jumps off the building. Yeah. He comes out in his pajamas. Yeah. So like he lives there too. So he lives there too. He's one of them. In a trench coat and pajamas. What, what, why did, what's the explanation for Terry is that, that it didn't work out and they killed her. Like she couldn't get pregnant. I don't get, she the... couldn't get pregnant and they killed her. She was like, okay. you know, a former drug addict and sort of unstable and possibly damaged. You know, right. she has that one encounter and she's a weird actress who, think went to jail for shooting her boyfriend really like in the last 15 years or something really she was a, a playboy playmate and um mia farrow sort of references her says she looks like the actress that that actress is named i'm sorry i i thought you were victoria ventry the actress i'm sorry it's all right a lot of people think i'm victoria i don't see any resemblance do you know her no 
Yes. She's like, um, are you Veronica Vetri? Yeah, exactly. Does everyone, you everyone look a lot that. like Veronica. She's like, I hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Cast of Beth really took me in. I was on drugs and starving. So it sounds like a poor host for um, the Antichrist. Yes. The Cast of the most wonderful people in the world, bar none. You know, they picked me up off the sidewalk, literally. You were sick? I was starving and on dope and doing a lot of other things. They're childless, though. I'm like the daughter they never had. At first, I thought they wanted me for some kind of a sex thing, but they've turned out to be like real grandparents. It's nice to know there are people like that when you hear so much about apathy and people who are afraid of getting involved. I'd be dead now if it wasn't for them. That's an absolute fact. Dead or in jail. And then, you know, they're very, the Castabets, when they make their first appearance. Oh, my God. You know, they come up the street in front of the Dakota. And the um, outfit that Roman is wearing is so good. Roman's wearing like a seersucker suit and a, a kind of drillby hat. And um, he's not that shocked. You have a young woman named Teresa Gianofrio living with you? We do. What's wrong? Has there been an accident? You'd better brace yourself with some bad news. She's dead. Jumped out of the window. That's not possible. That's a mistake. Artie, you want to let these folks take a look, please? I knew this would happen. She got deeply depressed every three weeks or so. I told my wife about it, but she poo-pooed me. She's like, I no. warned my wife uh, over and over <laughs> that this would happen, but she poo-pooed me. <laughs> and I, I also love that uh, they're just totally from two different like social classes. Like he's this international sort of um, worldly character. Do you come from Australia? Oh, no, no. I'm from right here in New York City. I've been there, though. I've been everywhere, literally. You name a place, and I've been there. <laughs> Go ahead, name a place. Fairbanks, Alaska. I've been there. Been all over Alaska. Yes, Fairbanks, Juneau, Anchorage, Nome, Sitka, Seward. Yeah, he just seems like a sort of a feet man from an earlier generation when he's like, usually I mix these precisely as a bartender. I seem to have overfilled the glasses. <laughs> no, 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 don't get up. Generally, I pour these out precisely as a bartender, don't I, Minnie? Just watch the carpet. But this evening, I made a little too much and rather I'm... <laughs> but I've overfilled the glasses. She's like, yes, mom, you rug. And she's like somebody from a kind of Brooklyn second generation yes. immigrant shtetl. <coughs> carpet. Oh, dear. Brand new carpet. This man's so clumsy. Yes. And ah, oh, you're spilling it on the rug. Oh, I'm going <laughs> to make you a potion. And he's like, I've been everywhere. Fairbanks, Juno, Sitka Seward. That shot of him when he's listing off all the places he's been is so Polanski. It's so amazing. It's this wide shot of him just sitting in his chair in the far back of the frame. Right. And it's, again, what you're talking about, because really for like two thirds of the movie, if you if you put yourself in the mind of an audience member seeing this in what, 1968, 1969, when it came out? 68, yeah. 68, like it takes two thirds of the way through almost to that very last scene that you're talking about to really get what's going on, which is such a brave choice nowadays when everything is so laid out for the viewer. But when you look at the movie a second time and you know what's going on, you the, the the master craft of Polanski's total control of every frame and what he's imparting to the viewer is all the more impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's so many 
sinister things that you just rationalize, mm -hmm. like uh, like the young couple that then you know seem creepier and creepier. Um, and then it's also just brilliant casting, you know. Oh my god! I think Polanski wanted Sharon Tate, yeah. um, and people like Elizabeth Montgomery and stuff, and. Mia Farrow was sort of a household word, you know, in Peyton Place, but she hadn't been in a lot. And she was Sinatra's wife, so everybody would sort of heard of her. But it was a risk. And then they wanted Redford for a while, and he was just like, yeah. this isn't what I do. I'm like handsome as <laughs> shit. That's like Polanski's genius streak. He wants to torture the pretty boy. You know, if he could have gotten Redford, he would have just loved to sort of make him the biggest shit in the movie for selling out his wife. and. Yeah, and it's a stretch that Cassavetes is a sort of glamour boy commercial actor. You know, he's in that yeah. motorcycle ad. <laughs> you know, you really should discover the swinging world of Yamaha. Why don't you get on? Have a ride. Come on, come on. Okay. Come on, let's go. Well, uh, here we go. And he just seems like a sort of, sort of dark, complex indie guy throughout the entire thing. He does. And it's great also how Mia Farrow gives the exact same three-sentence synopsis of his acting career anytime anyone asks about him. He was in Luther and Nobody Loves an Albatross and he does a lot of television and radio. He was in Nobody Loves an Albatross, Luther, and a lot of commercials. <laughs> a lot of commercials and radio. <laughs> it's like, well, that's where the money is. Elisha Cook actually says that. Yes. And then the whole bullshit thing of Roman Castavet where he's like, did you ever get to play that leading part guy? Me? No. Oh, weren't you Albert Finney's understudy? No. Well, that's strange. I remember being struck by a gesture you made and checking in the program to see who you were. In Luther, you <laughs> did a sort of a gesture I thought was very effective. What gesture was that? Well, I know, I'm not sure now. It was a reaction. A... Oh, I, I did a thing with my arms when Luther was having a fit with a kind of involuntary reach. That's it. That's it. It had a wonderful authenticity to it. <laughs> and he just buys it. He's eating out. It's just what you can do to any actor. I, I did do kind of a thing with my arm. Yes, that's yes, that's it. what it, it was. had a yeah. wonderful authenticity. <laughs> so all those actors, Polanski wanted, like, he sketched them, right, based off the Ira Levin novel. And then I think he's the one who had the genius idea to say, like, I want this. I want all the secondary parts cast from those life lifer Hollywood old school actors. Right. Right. So Sidney Blackmer is a kind of, you know, was like a southern aristocrat who was in a lot of serious Broadway stuff and character roles. And of course, Maurice Evans is like was a huge British. It would be like casting Gilgood or something. I mm -hmm. mean, he was except he was known you know, around that time for being Dr. Zayas. Where is your tribe? My tribe? <laughs> they live on another planet in another solar system. Even in your life, some truth slips through. Yes. Humans can't speak. He, you know, it's just great. There's just, they're all, it's when a whole class of an older generation was just a fancier group of people, you know? Yeah. Right. They're just even, you know, Ralph Bellamy as Dr. Saperstein is they're all people that were raised in the sort of, you know, Hollywood vocal coaching and mm -hmm. uh, all spoke the King's English. It mirrors a lot in a square way of what's happening in the 60s. It's like an mm -hmm. older, younger generation kind of conflict. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have or had so many relatives that were exactly like 
sure. uh, Sidney Blackmer and Maurice yeah. Evans. <laughs> he writes boys' stories. <laughs> That's what he does. <laughs> Maurice Evans. Very popular boys' stories. <laughs> and then the kind of meeting of those two titans when you see that, uh, you know, Maurice Evans, Hutch, is going down. Yes. He can't have him around. That's an insane scene, man. That is uh, the way that they that Roman is staring him down across the uh, across the coffee table there is right. so intense. Mrs. Castavet makes a vitamin drink for me every day from fresh herbs she grows. Yes, all according to Dr. Saperstein's directions, of course. Uh, he's inclined to be suspicious of commercially prepared vitamin pills. <laughs> Indeed. Well, surely they're manufactured under every imaginable safeguard. Oh, that's quite true. But commercial pills can sit for months on a druggist's shelf and lose a great deal of their original potency. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> right, it's like... <laughs> well, I, surely they're made under the strictest government regulation. <laughs> yes. But vitamin yes. can sit on a shelf for months and lose much of their potency. Hutch is like, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Weirdo. <laughs> and that's where she notices his uh, pierced ears, which was just a great touch. That is such a great touch. A super tight insert <laughs> shot of a pierced old man's ear. And I'll bet they got a different old man. I'm sure. I don't, I don't think he was willing to be pierced for the role. I don't think it's worth it to me, Roman. <laughs> I like the idea of having everything fresh and natural. I bet expectant mothers chew bits of tannis root when nobody would even heard of vitamin pills. Tannis root? It's one of the herbs she puts in the drink. Or is it an herb? Can a root be an herb? You sure you don't mean anise or orise root? Or tannis. Hmm. Are you sure you don't mean anise root or an eyes? <laughs> no, tennis root. Piercing eyes. Just like you're dead through your yeah, glove. Yeah, he's already, <laughs> he's already snagged the glove at that point for the whatever witchcraft yeah. is going to befall him. Do you remember when you plugged in to the comedy of the movie as opposed to the horror? You know, I think everything in it, sort of, every sort of comedic thing appealed to what my sensibility was early on, which is that it was, you know, macabre, but exaggerated. That's all kind of ridiculous yeah. in a certain way. You know, the first thing you see, you know, Ruth Gordon is just way over the top the entire time. And uh, she's scenery chewing. And so so Sidney Blackmer. I mean, his yeah. everything is kind of exaggerated and extreme. You know, the first other signs of his being kind of bizarre and intimidating to her is, you know, he goes on an anti-Catholic thing. No pope ever visits a city where the newspapers are on strike. I heard he's going to postpone and wait till it's over. Well, that's showbiz. That's exactly what it is. All the costumes, the rituals, all religions. Oh, oh, I think we're offending Rosemary. No, no. No, you're not religious, my dear, are you? But I, I was brought up a Catholic. Now I don't know. Yeah, you looked uncomfortable. Well, he is the Pope. Well, now, you don't need to have respect for him because he pretends that he's holy. Yeah. You know, the Pope never went to a city where there was a newspaper strike, and she's right. just like, I just don't, you know, he is the Pope. It's like, ah. Mm-hmm. The costumes, the pageantry, it's all bullshit. Um, so all that, I think, appealed to me. You know, starting with the elevator operator. You know, I don't go in for the sort of dream sequence chanting and stuff. Yeah. You know, that I always thought was a sort of, 
you know, after I'd seen it 20 times, you know, a moment to get a sandwich. Although, the, you know, they're well executed, as all dreams and movies kind of cause us to roll our eyes. Um, True. These are actually quite surreal and beautifully shot. You know, there's storms yeah. and she's out at sea and she's naked. The ticking uh, clock. The ticking clock and then the, the sort of, and then, you know, they foreshadow the actual rape scene. Yeah with right. these dreams and so you're not sure whether this is another dream sequence or whether you're witnessing you know something live which is a pretty creepy cool idea i'm sorry to hear you aren't feeling well it's only the mouse bite you'd better have your legs tied down in case of convulsions yes i suppose so there's always a chance it was rabbit the music bothers you. Let me know, and I'll have it stopped. Oh, no, no, no. Please don't change the program on my account. Try to sleep. We'll be waiting upon death. It's maybe one of the only parts of the movie that's a little bit too dated of its time in 1968. It's a little too, the Kennedys are in the dream. <clears throat> you know, it's... Um, yeah, it's yeah. And it's, I think so much of the movie was, of the screenplay, was taken directly from the book. Right. And Ira Levin obviously wrote it, you know, a couple of years before. Because it's, even the party sequence, they're, they're like a sort of square 60s yes. group you know they're yeah. the women are in miniskirts but have sort of bouffants and you know the guys are all in suits and ties and even that yeah. creepy guy who had the sex cult that documentary was made of makes an appearance oh yeah um, that's right in, uh, the, uh, in there in in her party with her friends yeah when it's decided she's just looking ghostly and has been yes. abused and kind of entrapped by these people for a long time it's like you know you're having a party and her friends try to rescue her. And uh, yeah, but very much so. It's kind of feels old. It's, you know, when you think of like other things, you know, it's not as square and out of touch as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm -hmm. But it's way behind in terms of stylish, stylistic stuff, um, you know, Easy Rider and stuff of the same year. But in its own way, like I actually looked back through Easy Rider's Raging Bulls to see if this movie was referenced as part of that like new Hollywood. It doesn't it gets almost a glancing reference, but everyone fixates on, you know, Easy Rider and Harold. Right. And but well, it's an old school movie in a lot of ways with modern cinematic touches. But yeah, it's in between. It straddles those worlds. Yeah. You know, because, of course, it was. You know, William Castle, who was sort mm -hmm. of a B-grade horror guy, had brought right. the project to to Evans. And Evans yeah. had widely said, like, no, no, we need like a stylish guy to direct it. Not you, but you can produce it. I read his submission of Rosemary's Baby, and I loved it. I loved it because it was really a horror film, but brilliantly written. And it really wasn't a horror film, but it was. It was too good for Bill Castle. <laughs> so I gotta have a special kind of person to put Rosemary's baby onto a screen. Polanski was like a, you know, I love this detail about his like 60s, 70s life where he was, he loved making movies, but if he loved one thing more, skiing at the time. 
Oh, they tried to get him to do something like downhill racer or something. Downhill like that. racer. So was Edmund's it downhill like, racer? Yeah, he dangled downhill racer, but he had the galley of Ira Levin's book and and slipped it to Polanski at the meeting, knowing that that would probably be a much more suitable thing. Right. He might like skiing, but he's a dark and twisted <laughs> fucking weirdo <laughs> that will do weird shit and have weird yes. shit happen to him the whole of his the life. Whole, the whole of his life, yeah. Yeah, from the beginning, from Mia Farrow singing that creepy yeah. lullaby. Na, 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 na. The font with the little... Like oh yeah, it's almost tales. like a family affair. <laughs> yeah, sort of like you know floral feminine script. It's completely weird. I don't know why yes. that. Somebody else would have had Rosemary's Baby. Bah, bah, right. Bah. All right. Well, I think it's um. I think Silbert says that it had to start like Gidget or something. It had to start so so milk toast and and safe. Well, it's benign and it's got a sort of pan of the city, but it's a mm-hmm. it's a cloudy, rainy day. It's weird. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's never sunny in that movie. It's kind of fall into winter yeah. and it's always kind of there's a bleakness. And then there's something weirdly uncozy about their apartment that I could turn into the coziest jewel box in yeah, the world. It's, it's pretty it's, sterile. It's never really furnished well. You know, there's that first scene of a couple in their new apartment that's almost like, you know, if Rockwell were darker, would be a Norman Rockwell <laughs> painting. You know, first dinner, you know, where like... On a board on with a floor. bare lamp. Yeah. Yeah, there's a single lamp that got taken yeah. out. But it never gets cozier than that. And, you know, right. the bedroom is weird that you don't notice any personal accoutrement mm-hmm. that they have. Roman and Minnie's place has many more, you know, oil paintings and brick and rack And it's like a rich, rich gothic meal from beginning to end. It's still Um, great. It's still good. And so many things about it. Yeah. And it also just like, oh, my God, I remember that New York, you know, when I was Mm -hmm. a little kid visiting cousins. And, you know, there's that famous shot of New York traffic, you know. Yes. It sort of never changed except their old cabs. Where I guess right. Polanski shot it, you know, made her just right. walk into traffic. It's like no yes. one would hit a pregnant woman. <laughs> They'll murder a pregnant woman. They'll murder a pregnant woman, but they won't run into you at the car. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting to look at the style because they they obviously wanted to make something traditional with avant-garde touches, I think. And then, you know, Polanski was incapable of not making something that was chilling and stylish and stuff. Right. You know, when they did the interior shots uh, for the, I guess the Dakota wouldn't let them film inside the apartment building. So that's why you only see the exterior and coming in through the, the like that Lalique water fountain or whatever they have. In the yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you look at it now, the way that they set decorated, and this is probably the great Richard Silbert's work, you know, even outside their apartment door, there's a light fixture on the wall. It's sort of this like, Sibian-like kind of devilish figure holding two light bulbs on the yeah, wall. Gargoyle and, yeah, gargoyle. Yeah, just the patina of the walls. Like the yeah. way, you know, when I first moved to New York, all hallways, either in <laughs> like a Park Avenue building or on the Lower East Side, had a kind of patina and a kind of rubbly-bubbly kind of yeah. walls with 100 coats of paint. And then right. beautiful detail work, you know, mosaic tiles, terrazzo, beautiful sconces. You know, you see in their apartments, they've got, uh, yeah, just features that were from, you know, the early 20th century or or, right. or before. 
you know, inset, you know, they're leaded glass windows and they're, you know, built in kind of banquettes under the windows. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a great second tour when Mini Castavet is looking. Ah, I've never seen that before. What do you pay for a chair like that? Yeah. I don't know, $200? (laughs) Oh, God. Well, I want to talk about Ruth Gordon for a second. I mean, I love Ruth Gordon in so many things. This is this is an amazing performance for her. She deservedly won an Academy Award for it. One of the things I really like about this is is when I first started watching it last week in preparation, I thought I thought I was going to be excited about you know some other things like oh I get to watch really watch Cassavetes this time or I really want to watch Mia Farrow this time or I really want to watch you know uh, Polanski's yeah. direction. I was like I've seen the Ruth Gordon performance a hundred times, but the edge in this movie that she's allowed to do, which she doesn't ever usually get to do. There's a menacing edge sometimes to her. I'm thinking of the scene where after the dinner party, she's washing the dishes with Mia Farrow. I'd like to have a spice garden someday. I guess I'm a country girl at heart. You come from a big family? Mm-hmm. Three brothers and two sisters. Your sister's married? Mm-hmm. They have children? One has two, the other has four. Well, there's a chance you'll have lots of children, too. Oh, we're fertile, all right. I've got 16 nieces and nephews. My goodness. Would you like me to wash and you can wipe for a while? Oh, no, that's fine, dear. And she's sort of absentmindedly not really there, not really paying attention to Mia Farrow in a way that isn't really explained other than that it's meant to impart that sense of unease to us, the viewer, that something's not right. She's not her charming, friendly self. And when she's challenged a few times, she gets this hard-edged look and she's mean and kind of nasty. And she doesn't usually get to do that. You know, in Harold and Maude, she gets to like, you know, ride around on a motorcycle and and thwart Tom Skerritt as a cop and sort of be zany and kooky. But I think that edge is what put this performance kind of, when I say over the top, just mean uh, uh, an exceptional Ruth Gordon performance because she gets to do a little of that menace that kind of lies beneath the kookiness. Yeah, I feel like she did something, you know, she told herself that the character has a primary agenda and Mm -hmm. that all of her relating to Mia Farrow is kind of topical in the service. Yes. So she goes over there and I think she must have told herself, what you're really doing is casing the joint. Mm. That's nice, what is it? That's a TV room? Uh, Well, only temporarily. It's going to be a nursery. Oh, you're pregnant? No, not yet. I hope to be as soon as we're settled. Wonderful, well, you're young and healthy. You have lots of children. We plan to have three. I didn't see what you did to this apartment. The woman I had it before was a dear friend of mine. I know. Terry told me. Oh, did she? You two had some long talks together in the laundry room. Only one. Oh, oh my God. Oh, it looks so much brighter. Why do you pick a chair like that? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, really. I think about $200. Um, you know, she's been there. Her best friend had an herb garden. <laughs> right. Like, what's right. she, you know. <laughs> what are you going to learn? About the layout. Sussing them out. And every time when that edge turns that you're talking about, and that's well observed, you know, she's giving her 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 drink. And she's like, you know, what's in that? What's in it? Snips and snails and puppies' dogs' tails. That's fine, but what if we want a girl? Do you? 
It'd be nice if the first one were a boy. Well, there you are. No, really, what is in it? A raw egg, gelatin, herbs, tennis root. Remember that? Remember some other things? It's like snips and snails and puppy dog tails. And she and Mia Farrow says, but what if it's a girl? She's like, you yeah, want I a girl, girl do you? It's just like, that would be totally against our agenda. Even um, when she gives her her mail, you know, when she's leaving the first time, she's, oh, look, your mail. And she, she picks up the mail, like looks at it to make sure it's not, I don't know, like a Bible or something. Oh, ads. Even that yeah. is what you're talking about. It's in service of that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then when she has her, the, her compadre, the great, uh patsy kelly oh my god who's my favorite person in the movie i love Ooh. her I have, a, I have a quote for her speaking about your thwarted performative career ted this is one of the great quotes about show business i've ever read and it comes from patsy kelly who was a really ahead of her time out lesbian at a time where that was not done right oh yeah she was she lived she was the companion of Tallulah bankhead oh, wow i didn't know that she was her lover yeah and and was of course was also known like in silence in the 20s is the queen of the wisecracks. So she had this amazing quote. She said, in 40 odd years in show business, some years I could do no wrong and some years I could do nothing right. Show business. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, that's totally the truth. And she took it in kind. I mean, there, <laughs> she probably has four scenes in the whole movie, none of them more <laughs> than a minute long. Yeah, You know, the final scene where she doesn't want to give the baby to Rosemary, where she gives her, like, sticks her tongue out at her, yeah. is one of the great, I, I wish I had a wall-sized poster of that. That would be an amazing poster. You know, early on, she comes in and they start knitting. They're obviously yeah. just guarding Rosemary. <laughs> they just, they bowl their way in. Hi, dear. We're not bothering you, are we? That's my dear friend, Laura Louise McBurney. He lives up on 12. Laura Louise is his guy's wife, Rosemary. Hello, Rosemary, and welcome to the brand. Laura Louise just met Guy. She wanted to meet you, too. Could we come in? Uh, of course. Please do. There you are. Go ahead. Look at the guy. There's a light. Oh, isn't that beautiful? It came oh. this morning. Are you all right, dear? You look worn. Oh, no, I'm fine. It's the first day of my period. <laughs> You're up and around? On my first day, I experienced such pain, I couldn't move, eat, or anything. Dan used to give me gin through a straw to kill the pain. Yeah. Girls today take things much more in their stride. They're much healthier than we were, thanks to vitamins, better medical care. What are those things over there? Seat covers? Um, cushions for the window seats. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, they just set up shop. She's just harsh and completely oh, aggressive and not going anywhere. Amazing. She's so good. What about Cassavetes? Like, he gives a good performance. I've never been super impressed with him as an actor, per se. I don't know why. It's just something that's a little bit missing for me. He's good. He's good. He's, He's got a good Columbo under his belt. He does. He does. Yeah. You know, we do the Columbo Cinematic Universe, which of which there's many crossovers in this episode, but. Uh... <laughs> Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. He, uh, yeah, his Columbo episode is ba is one of the most drawn out, like, let let me and my friend Peter just mess around for like days as we. Yeah, extend exactly. Plot, you know, but. Um, it's so funny how Columbo, just to diverge for a second, is so often. <laughs> about the kind of um, crossover between 
the criminal artistic entertainment class <laughs> and just good old kind of uh, yeah. shoe leather. That's like, right. It's always like a composer, a conductor. Right. The Johnny Cash <laughs> is a kind of, you know, country music. Love that guy. one. Yeah. But it's always just like, yeah, no. And, and then he always acts equally unfamiliar with that whole world, even though right. every criminal is like, you know, somebody <laughs> he spends most of his time either going to the Hollywood Bowl or this recording studio or this orchestral scoring place. Like he must annoyingly really playing chopsticks for like a full <laughs> five minute scene. Yeah. Cassavetes, um, he's so good too. And the, the times when, when Roe kind of pisses him off or isn't going according to the agenda, like when, when they come back and she's like, I've gotten a present and she's wearing the stinky necklace. Aren't you going to wear it? It smells. There's stuff in it called tennis root from a greenhouse. <laughs> Not too bad, though. Look, if you took it, you ought to wear it. <laughs> it's so transparent, yeah. it's just the right note. And it's really just a two day, you know, it's like a one day change between when they keep him and mm -hmm. they obviously, you know, make him an offer, or, you know, they make a deal. <laughs> but is that the fastest turnaround of a husband in the history of movies? I mean, so over half a cigar after dinner, they, they, they convinced the guy to let his wife be impregnated by Satan. Just make an offer. Do you want to be a very famous, popular actor who's rich? <laughs> yes. Let yes. your wife be raped by the devil. No problem. No it problem. sounds like it's, yeah, no, no. I was, yeah. you had me at rich. And, and TV, you're saying? Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> and she won't be harmed though, right? No, no, they won't harm her. No, okay. And you're fine with blinding Donald Baumgart. <laughs> Guy? What is it? Donald Baumgart, he's gone blind. He woke up yesterday and he can't see. Oh, no. Oh, I've got the part. That's a hell of a way to get it. Listen, uh, I have to get out and walk around. Yeah, I understand. Go ahead. The first time they're about to go over there, it's like, oh, I don't know, Ro. You make yeah. friends with these old folks and uh, never get rid of them. Yeah. And then the next time you see him talking about them, it's like, God, the stories are fascinating. I'm going back now. <laughs> like, Wait, what? How about that shot at the end of the dinner, which is just the cigar smoke and you can't oh, see, yeah. you can't see Roman Castavet and you, and you can't see Cassavetes. You just see the smoke and that's the moment where the deal is struck. It's just, yeah, yeah. He's, the the he's, control that Polanski had over how this would unfold is like uncanny to think about having that presence of mind at that age to direct that intelligently. And it's so much better that you suspect some arrange but don't know what's going on. You have no mm -hmm. idea a deal has been struck yet. Like a lot of other people would have the deal, you know, yeah. would have... Uh, we can make you yes. kind of fulfill all your dreams with just a small token on your part. But uh, yeah, you're still guessing. You're like, you don't know whether she's paranoid or something's really happening for a long, right. long time, which is the genius of the movie. Like you really don't know that she isn't just having a kind of 
pregnant woman's insanity, which mm-hmm. we all have experienced, until you see them, you know, running around her yeah. apartment, you know? Yeah. Phil Leeds, leading Phil the Leeds. That's, you know, that Polanski says that's his favorite shot in the whole movie. This is such a director thing to say. You would think- Of the old it, people tiptoeing? No, no. It's like, I, I just love watching all these commentaries. It's like some, we would think that, you know, Polanski's favorite shot would be something like, the, the cigar smoke when you don't see them or or the the, the devil rape scene or, or something grand and sort of directorial. Yeah. No, his favorite shot in the whole movie. And he's like, I can't even tell you why this is. He's like, this is my favorite shot. It's when she is hustled out of Charles Grodin's doctor's office by Saperstein and her husband. And she gets into a car driven by Phil Leeds, who just turns around and gives her this little like, hi, sweetie, even though like they're basically kidnapping her into a satanic ring. And yeah. just that's the shot he loves the most in the whole movie. <laughs> it's great because it's um, the way a cab driver would be. They all mm-hmm. clearly have an agenda to just keep her pacified. Yeah, he's just cordial the way people of his yes. generation were raised. <laughs> How are you, sweetie? <laughs> Come on just in. Just drain. Got room back there? Let me move that towel off the seat for you so you have enough spot back there. You feeling all right? You know. And then, of course, the, the betrayal of um, Charles Grodin is mm. one of the most horrible things oh, in the movie. Still, I mean, still gets me. Still, even though I know it's coming, it still gets me every time. Now, maybe all of this is coincidence, but one thing is for sure: they have a coven and they want my baby. Certainly seems that way. afraid you wouldn't believe me i don't believe in witchcraft but there are plenty of maniacs and crazy people in this city the doctor's name is shand you say no no dr shand is one of these people the doctor's name is saperstein abraham saperstein yeah do you know him i've met him once or twice to look at him you'd never think no you wouldn't not in a million years would you like to go into Mount Sinai right now, this evening? Yeah, I would love to. Would that be possible? It's difficult. We'll try. I want you to lie down and get some rest. Thanks. It's like, God bless you, doctor. You know, she goes to sleep. She's sedated. Come with us quietly, Rosemary. Don't argue or make a scene. Because if you say anything more about witches or witchcraft, we're going to be forced to take you to a mental hospital. You don't want that, do you? So put your shoes on. We just want to take you home. No one's going to hurt you. Or the baby. Put your shoes on. Hello, Rosemary. If you say anything now, we're going to put you in a madhouse. That's another shot Polanski references. Is the, and also, he shoots so many men kind of at waist or pocket level in the movie. And there's a shot of Saperstein where he just slips. He looks at the pills, and then he slips them into his suit coat pocket. And it's just this like language of menace that Polanski kind of figured out uh, that's not traditional. It's not what you would expect. The use of right. legs walking through frames as opposed to whole bodies. And uh, Another aspect of the, of the Saperstein character, which is chilling and important, is that for the whole idea of conspiracy and paranoia, is that um, he's not like an isolated weirdo. 
Oh, it's going to be so exciting. Listen, dear, you got a good doctor? Oh, yes, a very good one. One of the top obstetricians is a dear friend of ours, Abe Saperstein, delivers all the society babies. Abe Saperstein? One of the finest obstetricians in the country. Wasn't he on Open End a couple of years ago? That's right. Well? Uh, wh what about Dr. Hill? Oh, don't worry about Hill. I'll tell him something. You know me. <laughs> Listen, I don't let you go to no Dr. Hill nobody ever heard of. The best is what you're going to have, young lady. Where's your telephone, huh? Uh, it's uh, in the bedroom. He's a brilliant man. Very sensitive. He's somebody who's known in society. Hutch's daughter had his, his right. you know, had her kids. There's her two kids through Saperstein. Yeah. He's a society sort of obstetrician. So the tentacles of the coven, you know, have extended yeah. throughout, right. you know, New York society. It's just not a weird Japanese guy with a camera and <laughs> Patsy Kelly. It's, you know, in all, all the upper echelons of uh, yes. New York society. Do you know the anecdote that's my, my all-time favorite movie anecdote comes from this? Do you know the anecdote that Bill Fraker, the DP, tells about the scene when Ruth Gordon calls Saperstein from her apartment? Hey, Minnie. Fine. Listen, Abe, a dear friend of ours just found out today she's pregnant. Uh, yeah, isn't it? I'm in her apartment right now. And uh, we told her you'd be glad to take care of her. You wouldn't charge her any of fancy society prices, neither. Uh -huh. Well, just wait a minute. Rosemary, tomorrow morning at 11? All right. <laughs> yeah, 11's fine, Abe. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you too. No, uh, no, 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 not at all. All right. Well, let's hope so. Goodbye. Do you know that story? No. What is that again? There's a shot in Rosemary's Baby. Says, where's the telephone? And Mia says, in the bedroom. And Ruth says, oh, good. And she exits. Roman says, Billy, give me a POV of, uh, of Ruth. And I got him framed perfectly. Beautifully see her on the phone talking. I said, okay, Roman, we're ready. And he comes over and he looks. He says, no, 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 Billy. No, 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 Billy. Move, move, move. Move the left, move the left. And kindly move. And I look through and I see yeah. just the and, back uh, of Ruth Gordon seated on the bed. And he can't see her face or see the top of I said, but you can't see her. He says, exactly. I said, oh, okay. So now we go to the theater. And 800 people in the theater all go to see around the door jam. That's Roman Polanski. That's Roman Polanski. It's, yeah, it's, that's like, amazing, cool. amazing anecdote. Yeah, and the, it's those scenes that you end up loving um, and weird little incidental exchanges um, more than like, as you said, the more sort of showy, grandiose, you know, look, mm -hmm. she's eating a raw steak, you know. As a kid, you knew about that scene before ever seeing it, like the liver scene. It's such a yeah. throwaway thing to become so famous. Why Why did the eating the liver, is it like the grossness of that? I think it's the grossness and it's visceral and she's actually losing her mind and she's becoming just a sort of weird um, gestating beast. <laughs> uh, also like, you know, for a guy in the 60s, you know, when men still didn't witness um, sure. childbirth and yeah. they were somewhat detached you know, Cassavetes has this great, like, way over-involved thing when she's going to change gynecologists. Rosemary, you got the best doctor in New York. You know who Dr. Hill is? He's a Charlie nobody. That's who he is. I'm tired of hearing how great Dr. Saperstein is. <laughs> well, we'll have to pay Saperstein. We'll have to pay Hill. Well, it's out of the question. Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, I'm, 
I'm not changing. I just want to go to Dr. Hill and get a second opinion. I won't let you do it, Rome. I mean, because it's, uh, it's not fair to Saperstein. Not fair to... What are you talking about? What about what's fair to me? Why are you going with Hill? Who's a nothing and nobody? It's like, wow, you really have an opinion. You're not even going to be in the room here when it's born. It's like, it's not fair to Saperstein. He's like, no, Fred, it's Saperstein. What about me? <laughs> but yeah, he's very concerned about hurting Saperstein's feelings. Yes, yes. Uh, apparently he and he and Polanski, of course, he couldn't think of two directors more diametrically opposed in style, right? So you have like, Cassavetes is like, I don't know. I mean, I got a few pages of a story here, but let's like get a whole apparatus to shoot a movie and we'll figure it out as we go. Like, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but let's do that. And then you have Polanski who, Mia Farrow says, if you if in one scene you held up a glass here and in the next take you held it up here, he'd stop everything down and say, no, 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 you did not do the glass the exact right way. And of course, Cassavetes like get pissed off about he didn't he wanted to riff at improv. And right. Right. That. That's like a famous fast times thing where Sean Penn was doing that. and Ray Walston was just losing his shit. <laughs> like, I can't work with this. <laughs> like, I don't know, dude, maybe I'll leave. Just that's not the line. <laughs> yeah and the whole thing the weird friend of hutch she's great grace cardiff oh yeah Hungarian amazing. actress great like oh she's gonna be scottish grace cardiff this i'm from uh dubrovnik the grace cardiff hutch relationship is weird that's sort of like an older widowed or divorced man who has a a, a lady friend in his a building friend he's a walker he's a walker i put some soup on for you hutch I'll be back later. Don't start drinking before five. An old lost New York. <laughs> you're, so, um, you're so right. There's the funeral scene where, where you finally see her. And she's yes. like, the name is an anagram. He said to say that. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to talk to you about all the phone call scenes are so incredible because they're just done differently than the way phone call scenes are usually done in any movie in that we don't, see the other person on a fake phone call right usually it's a it's a series of cuts these are all done with the real audio the way it would sound on a phone which adds to that creepiness throughout the beginning part of the movie and even grace's kind of hesitation when roe calls after hutch has been struck ill yes is this edward hutchins apartment yes who is this please uh, my name is Rosemary Woodhouse. I had an appointment with Mr. Hutchins. Is he there? Hello? He was taken ill this morning. Taken ill? Yes. He's in a deep coma at St. Vincent's Hospital. That's awful. I, I, I just spoke to him last night about, about 10.30. I spoke to him at 11. Who is this? You don't know me, Rosemary. I'm Grace Cardiff, Hutchins' friend. Um. Do they, do they know what's causing it? No, they don't know yet. At the moment, he's totally unresponsive. Oh, oh, I'm going to the hospital now. Is there anything I can do? Not really. Right, um, thank you. She's sort of like, she's very tentative with her. It doesn't, doesn't know how much information to give out. It's like the direction of the other side of the phone calls is so specific and great 
that it gives you that creepy kind of unknown air throughout the, the movie unfolding. Yeah, absolutely. The conversations with Dr. Hill. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, you know, remember, she's she's got to see him. She's running yes. away to escape to him. Dr. Hill, Dr. Hill, there's a plot. I know that sounds crazy. You're probably thinking, my God, this poor girl is really flipped. But I, I haven't flipped, Dr. Hill, I swear. By all the saints, I haven't. There are plots against people, aren't there? Well, there's one against me and my baby. Come to my office tomorrow after five. No, right now. Mrs. Woodhouse, I'm not at my office now. I'm home. I've been up since yesterday morning. I beg you. I beg you. I can't stay here. My office at eight o'clock. Yes, thank you. All right. Oh, wait, wait, Dr. Hill. Yes. Um, my husband may call you and... Ask if you I'm heard. not going to speak to anyone. I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> where Dr. Hill, where Groden is listening to her far-fetched story. Mm-hmm. And you don't know whether he thinks she's batshit or not. Right. You don't, they withhold that until yeah. Saperstein and her husband enter the room. But he's like, it sounds very far-fetched, but I've known worse to have. It's like, wow, he buys it. Yeah. He's going to put her in a safe room. Yes. But clearly, you know, then you learn that he's immediately been like, your wife is fucking bad shit. The other amazing tell for him is after she gets back uh, and he calls her the first time, he calls her to tell her, congratulations, you're pregnant, right? Hello? Miss Woodhouse? Dr. Hill? Congratulations. Really? Really. There? Uh, yes, um, what happens now? Very little. You come see me next month. You get those Natalin pills, one a day. I'll mail you forms for the hospital. Uh, when will it be? Uh, it works out to be June 28th. <laughs> that sounds so far away. It is. Yeah. Well, one more thing, Miss Woodhouse. Uh, we'd like another blood sample. Oh, yes, of course. The tell happens at the end of that first phone call when he tells her she has to come back in on Monday for routine blood work. And he, he bobbles the line specifically at the end where, where she's like, blood work? What for? Uh, the nurse didn't take enough, so would you drop by and see her? But uh, I am pregnant, aren't I? Oh yes, it's just for blood sample, uh, blood sugar and so forth. Nothing to be concerned about, you're pregnant, don't worry. And he's like, oh yeah, just some blood sugar, blood, uh, blood levels. Like he's obviously just making it up. And right. And and that's how, and it's just that one bobble that like tracks to the end of the movie where that's the tell that he's in on it too. Anybody who's paranoid um, or has a tendency that way, it's paid off uh, in every aspect of this. Oh, the other phone call thing I wanted to ask is um, when she calls the blind actor, Tony Curtis. Yeah, Tony Donna Curtis Baumgart. is doing the, He's doing the voice, which she didn't know, and that contributes again to her slight kind of dazed uncertainty of what's going on because Tony, I guess, had visited the set and Roman said, would you do this thing for me? And of course, Tony Curtis, like so great. Like he just nails that phone call with zero preparation. He just did that on the fly on the set that day. Yeah. Is this Donald Baumgart? That's right. This is Rosemary Woodhouse. Guy Woodhouse's wife. Oh, yeah. 
I want My to know. My God, you must be a happy little lady these days. I just huh? living in the brown rows of uniforms. I wanted to know you. how you are. If there's been any improvement. Well, bless your heart. <laughs> Woodhouse is one of it. Well, I'm splendid. I've only broke six glasses today. Hi. Guy and I are both very unhappy that that he got his break because of your misfortune. Oh my God! It's yeah, the um, all Saperstein scenes are great. Um, I'm gonna have Minnie make you a drink that's more nutritious, <laughs> fresher than anything on the market. Please don't read books. No pregnancy was ever exactly like the ones described in the books. And don't listen to your friends either. No two pregnancies are ever alike. Doctor Hill prescribed vitamin pills. No pills. Minnie Castavet has a herbarium. I'm going to have her make a daily drink for you that'll be fresher, safer, and more vitamin-rich than any pills on the market. Than any pill you could possibly get. Oh, my God. It's so brilliant, man. It's so good. Mia's good. I, I'm not usually a big fan of Mia Farrow's acting, but in this movie, she is phenomenal. And I'm surprised. I think it's because she was a TV star and, not, and, and a celebrity more than she was a film actress that she didn't even get nominated for this, which is crazy. Like, for Ruth Gordon to get nominated and Mia Farrow not to get nominated, I mean, it's, she's in every frame of the entire movie. What did Ruth Gordon say? It's unaccepting. Um, I, I can't tell you how encouraging a thing like this is. <laughs> this is very encouraging. <laughs> she was like 70. You know, another classic husband-wife thing. She gets her hair cut. What's that? I I've been to be dull so soon. Don't tell me you paid for that. Yes. You know, which is which every couple has been through before. Yes. Like, you know, you can't be like, oh my fucking God. But that's <laughs> kind of what is. everyone in the public, <laughs> including Sinatra, did. Yes. Like, it looked like a fucking 10-year-old boy. And for a while, they have her in practical kabuki makeup to look yes. wan and to look uh, wan and wasted. Yes, which you've Hush lost. notices. You know, you've lost at least twenty pounds. <laughs> oh, you've lost far more than that. How much weight have you lost? She's like two pounds. Far more than that. Then Roman Castavet turns into a OBGYN expert when they have their little tête-à-tête, -tête where he's like. Well, it's quite well. Common. It's quite common to lose it in the beginning, but she'll put it on probably too much. <laughs> I mean, like, you're, wow! We're you're, so you're okay with it, Roman? You're fine. You're not concerned. We're talking about it from the male perspective, but I think for women, the movie is also the fear of pregnancy. Like every pregnant woman at one point feels like they have a devil spawn in the inside them. It's very much that, and then the sort of social component where you've surrendered all your control to all these men. Yeah. You know, it, it would have been unthinkable to have her have a female OBGYN. Sure. So she's got these men. She's got her dad, uh, her her husband, who's got a lot of yeah. um, strong opinions. Roman Castavet, Hutch, mm -hmm. they're all weighing in. Yeah. And it's not until her girlfriends come at the party yeah. and they're like, oh my fucking God, it's not supposed yeah. to hurt for four yeah. months. And they literally lock him out of the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a great kitchen, you know, it's got like beautiful glass casement windows looking yes. into the kitchen. I have so much 
You have apartment envy for their apartment? Like you apartment you want to redesign yeah. the apartment. Yeah, the, I have apartment envy for dial-in for murder, too. That I have a lot yeah. of furniture envy. Furniture, mid-century modern furniture envy? It's even older. It's more That's classic older. than that. It's, it's, uh, but there's some mid-century modern in, in uh, Rose apartment, ugly mustard-colored yeah. uh, right. stuff with chrome. That yeah, that's what Manny's like. Wow, what's that all about? Are these famous buildings like the Dakota always kind of run down because they're so old in the public spaces? Well, the Dakota was like the first building built in that neighborhood. So there are photographs of it when there's nothing else around mm-hmm. except for empty lots carved out and farmland in the park. Wow. So it's like the first building in that whole area of the Upper West Side. So it's genuinely really old. It was built to be a fancy, fashionable building uh, for kind of people that weren't um, as sort of rigidly social. You know, the mm-hmm. West Side was always uh, funkier and for newer money. But it's, yeah, it was built in a style that's, you know, Victorian Gothic. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think it started being spooky uh, 30 years after it was built, like in the, in the tw- late 20s and early 30s. Right. And um, but in the 60s, you know, I, I'm sure it had never been steam cleaned. Right. Before, you know, now it's kind of yellow. But even when John Lennon lived there, um, it was, you know, soot blackened right. and spooky and spooky. Right. And those are, you know, I had friends that lived in the Ansonia and the Apthorpe. One like broke down a closet door and found a grand piano in a whole new room <laughs> with a skylight. So oh they're mysterious, hidden, bricked up places. And, right. you know, it was, it was just built for another era. So mm-hmm. they hid a lot of things and a lot of, I mean, that was just sort of a New York thing that yeah. you're a palimpsest. You're standing on many layers of, uh, mm-hmm. of past lives that are sort of mysterious. And, you know, it's one of those buildings. I don't, I don't know how many of them there are, but, you know, it requires an elevator operator. Right. With the accordion kind of thing. Yeah. And right. that's spooky and scary mm-hmm. for for kids. Um my grandmother had one of those and just a finger pinching, terrifying, <laughs> rickety, locked you know, in, small, yeah. confined space just to get your teeth set on edge as you go up this pumpy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But also just yeah, what I mentioned before, the idea that like this palatial space is going to yeah. be doable on an, a frequently unemployed actor's salary. We can come up with the 80 bucks a month if I get another commercial. <laughs> but it's also so New York because while the exterior and the public space in the building is so decrepit and kind of run down and soot blackened, what they do to the apartment is so New York. It's like, but you have your 10 rooms, you make them your own. You, that's your, you live within there yeah. in the bubble of the, of the Gothic rundown hallways and elevators. And you it's tell yourself as that New Yorkers, great, that's okay. Great old New York building scene um, in the laundry room with the storage cages, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's very well done. That's like Dick Silver, it's a production designer. He was a New Yorker. He knew that. Like to imagine that they built all that stuff on the studio in LA is amazing. Like it's easy to get on location, but the apartments, aside from the unbelievability of an actor getting a Dakota right. apartment, but the way that they make them look is spot on. Like it's yeah, it's amazing. Totally down to down to the patina of the kind yeah. of you know rusted cage work and stuff like that. 
there's always, every time there are those scenes, by the way, you should look for it. When like two women are just like, hey, you know, let's do laundry together. You know, let's mm-hmm. have that be a thing. This is pretty spooky. There's a completely preposterous, terrifying sound. What does your husband do? He's an actor. No kidding. What's his name? Guy Woodhouse. He was in Luther and Nobody Loves an Albatross and he does a lot of television and radio. Gee, I watch TV all day long. I'll bet I've seen him. Hate this basement. Yeah, me too. Gives me the creeps. Yes. Two glasses. Just just underscores why we have to do that. (laughs) Without that emotional punctuation, we might have seemed a little bit extreme. (laughs) All right, Ted. Let's move on to some of your latchkey TV experiences. Hello. You sent me a very good list, which I don't have at my recall. These were some shows that you re- that you watched as a child that were formative. Tell me about a few of your formative TV experiences as a young child. I loved the whole sort of rural revolution. I loved Green Acres. Green Acres is the place to be. Farm living is the life for me. Land spreading out so far and wide. Manhattan, just give me that countryside. New York is where I'd rather stay. I get allergic smelling hay. I just adore a penthouse view. Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. That, I thought, was one of the best written shows with mm-hmm. just consistent laughs. I liked Andy Griffith. I loved... I, that was another thing where, you know, Andy Griffith... People just bought this totally weird idea that Andy's aunt was a kind of high wasp and bee. Boy. One at a time, each in his turn, share and share alike. You go first, Briscoe, as head of the family. Take one and pass to the left. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Put one on the plate and pass the bowl to the left. (laughs) We don't do it that way here. We do not. Yes. It was like, Andy, what are you doing? <laughs> I've made hotcakes. It's like, oh my God, she's from Connecticut. What the fuck? And he's a rube. How did that happen? I ain't B. I ain't B practically raised me. I certainly did, Andy, before you went to Exeter. You know, um, that, con- that continued in his career because I just learned while doing the podcast that the part of the setup of Matlock is that he went to like Harvard or Yale or something. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. I can't consider myself more than just a tourist in the Matlock world, but uh, well, nor am I. But I mean, it's I, he did I, I, wear the same sort of like gray seersucker in every scene. <laughs> I'm the tenth Matlock. Yeah, I love the environment. I love you know the country houses. I like Petticoat Junction. N- not so much Beverly Hillbillies. My favorite Martian. I loved McHale's Navy. Mm, that's um, a good one. I mean, that was a kind of like before the term binge watching. You know, I would come home from school and watch, you know, four hours of rerun. Sure. Yes. And be, you know, at sort of seven or eight was able to sing along with every theme song. Mm-hmm. I didn't love, but I certainly consumed 
you know, hundreds of Brady Bunches and Partridge families and family affairs and Marcus Welby and Medical Center. Oh, yeah, you, you had Marcus Welby on your list. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, I was a big Brolin fan. Don't think, Dougie. Just look at me and listen carefully to what I'm saying. We won't hurt your dog. Believe me, I know what I'm doing. Please, Dougie, trust me. Will you trust me? And yeah. uh, was delighted when he was played that insane person in the, that movie, Skyjacked. Global Airways, Flight 502. Non-stop, Oakland to Minneapolis. On the flight deck, Captain Hank O'Hara. He's flown 10 million miles without a hitch. Here we go. You're up. A routine flight to a routine city. The kind of flight O'Hara's run a thousand times. The kind of flight anyone might take. But this time, there's going to be an unscheduled stop. Get on the horn to the FBI. Looks like 502's got a hijacker on board. Don't forget I've got passengers aboard this aircraft. Uh, don't worry, Captain. There won't be any shootouts. Captain, this passenger would like to talk to you. Intruding into Soviet airspace. They're liable to shoot us down and get the answers later. Did you ever yeah. see that? <laughs> yeah, Skyjack. <laughs> um, it's the first hijacking. It's, I think it, uh, yeah, it was way before, I think, um, Dio Guerrero brings a bomb onto the plane. Mm -hmm. And uh, Marcus and Welby is the greatest soporific grandma show of all time. It's like, it's pitched at everybody's grandmother, pacing wise. All the stories of the kids who end up like out of their minds on psychedelic drugs and Marcus Welby has to try and kind of treat them and also impart a little wisdom to them. And then they decided like, you know what, let's broaden our demo. Let's get something for the kids. And so they got a guy who drives up on a motorcycle. Yeah. And that's like the only sort of crazy radical thing he ever does. He's pretty yeah. much. I don't think you ever see it again. Probably says, but yeah. it's, yeah, it's sort of an older version of his character on Father Knows Best. Right. You know, and then by the 80s, I was like not watching TV anymore. I was out in the world. I want to ask you about some of your own acting experiences. I have a clip somewhere that I'm going to have to dig up of one of your on-camera appearances in some sort of space adventure series. What is that? That was a show I sort of head wrote and show ran called Space Cases for Nickelodeon, where I played a sort of magenta-faced uh, dad from Mercury. Wonderful to hear from you, Rosie. Every day we've been thinking about you, hoping to hear anything. Even after you disappeared from the Star Academy, we knew you'd be all right. We think of you every day, dear. Same here, Daddy. Look, uh, these are the people that want to use this. Of course. We'll talk to you later, sunshine. Love you. Love you too, guys. We love you, honey. And it was his kids that were lost in space, and it was actually co-created by Bill Moomy. Um, oh, really? And uh, so he had a lot of great 
uh, TV stories. stories stretching back to Twilight Zone. Um, oh, amazing. So, yes, uh, I acted in that. I played, um, I don't know why I played it sort of like a Bill Clinton character, but <laughs> I'm on a sort of telephone, like visual yeah. phone call. And it's like, how right. are you doing up there? And that's, uh, so I've been in a couple people's movies. I was in a couple of Seth movies, the Western mm -hmm. as a sort of guy in a brothel. And, um, oh, the Charlie's Theron one. Uh, yes, yes. Right. Million ways to die in the West. And then I play a sort of Fox news pundit in Ted two. Are any of you going to sit there and tell me that this stuffed doll is a person? No, not at all. We all agree all the time. And then I did a Soderbergh movie where I play a sort of talkative John. Yes, talkative uh, John in The Girlfriend Experience. That's a great, great performance, Ted. Oh, thank you. That, was that is really good. He just told me to um, wing it and talk about myself. So, and then he gave me some newspapers. That was it. And I had to ask him, like, do you, do you want me to walk over here and stop and Maybe I could make a drink, and then I'd go over to the bed, and he was like, whatever. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. So I did it, and uh, yeah, just sort of, I play somebody who's not even interested in um, having sex with the prostitute, right. the subject of the movie, who's played by the famous Sasha Gray. Right. How did you end up in that? A casting director summoned me, somebody that I knew. I just sort of uh, riffed for, mm -hmm. for that. Did you audition for Soderbergh? Yeah. Or just, uh, yeah. I auditioned for the casting director and they said, you got it. I think they just wanted somebody self-involved. I was able to just chatter for a while. So I, so I did that. And then I had a couple of ideas after the first take. And he said, no, no, that's perfect. That's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the best thing was Sasha Gray, who, who was like my kid's age, was like 18 then. Yeah. And had done like 470 movies. <laughs> As, as they do in the industry. <laughs> yeah, she sort of took me aside and she said, that was really good. I mean, I'm, I'm the only one who talks in our scene. She doesn't really say anything. But she says, God, it's like you and I are the only actors in this thing. I was like, uh, yeah, well, okay. Of sort. It's kind of like Leo scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the little kid, right? Getting, getting. Yeah, uh, that's great. You're the greatest <laughs> actor. You're one of the best actors I've ever worked with. <laughs> Thank you, Sasha. <laughs> but she's since done a lot of legitimate things so i don't want to yeah. i don't want to poo-poo her like uh mini cast of it but yeah then i did um you know various performances on mm -hmm. tv shows i've written for like the craig yeah. kilborn show i played a sort of recurrent bunch of characters right. a kind of country music guy named toby mountain who his sort of uh, sexuality kind of emerges and from mm -hmm. all his songs that he can't help and um yeah, various things here and there. I did a bunch of voices on Family Guy. Yeah, I've done things here and there. But you're the kind of writer, if they have, if you're in a writer's room, people are going to want to figure out ways to try and use you on camera because there's just something about your... Well, a lot of my pitches are, are performance and character-based. It's like right. you know, a guy saying, you know, what are you talking about? I wheedle my way in that way. By, <laughs> you know, Just the way he pitched it, I don't think anybody else can do it. Yeah. <laughs> Although when your star falls on a, on a show, they find ways for other people to do it. Yeah. One of the funniest things I've ever personally been present for was something that you did in Paul Kalp's office when we were working 
on World's Dumbest for True TV. Do you remember coming in with the doll that had the heart inside it and doing the little bit in the doorway? You don't even remember this, I'm sure. I don't. I think about that probably once every month or so. And Paul and I will go into just gasping laughter, remembering this kind of like throwaway, subtle, brilliant, comedic thing you were doing with this stuffed animal in Paul's doorway. Was it with an accent or was I can't I like even a remember? And it's like, if I describe, if I described it in great detail here, it, it would never like, that's the thing about your bits. A lot of the time is if, is if you talk them out to someone, they'll be like, okay, you know, but, but wow, when you're, you're looking for Thank a certain you. twisted brilliance, that's Ted Jessup. That's there's only, you can only get that from you. And I don't know where that comes from. Um, but that's, I've always found like in your great performances in our uh, Newsmasters series that we did so long ago, like way ahead of the digital web series revolution, when, 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 when uh-huh. you and Billy came in and, and did that, it was probably like, that was probably like 2009 or some, something, some crazy year, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that was great. That was great fun. It's always been tragic to me. Oh, that, that God. One of the best. Uh, go on to the bear One of the fruit. best things ever. Our next subject, documents have come to light, revealing that NASA abandoned astronauts to die on the moon. In particular, the Apollo 16 mission, John Young, Ken Mattingly, and Charles Duke, 1972. This has been covered up and has only now just come to light as a result of a uh, Freedom of Information Act request uh, by you, Kevin. Uh, Well, I've always been very skeptical of the space program. It's highly secretive. It's ruthless. They've been abandoning people since 1969. Uh, So I think it's very, very ominous, and it always has been. And it doesn't surprise me at all. I, I gotta agree with Kevin here. I mean, anyone who doesn't think that this stuff goes on in our government, every agency, every department, I don't care, uh, post office, Amtrak, um, there are deaths covered up. There are people abandoned to starve, to to die of thirst. It happens, and it happens with astonishing frequency. I, I must say, I was both stunned and it was a revelation to me when this happened. Ken Mattingly was a friend of mine. And I just sort of lost touch with him in the uh, early 1970s. I kept writing, I got nothing back. I thought, that guy's just being an asshole. All of a sudden now, I realized that he was the victim of the Nixon administration. It's well, amazing. The, the, the cover story was that he had uh, joined a monastery. I remember the day that Krista McAuliffe died and I just, I just cried and cried and cried and cried. I still cry. There, Please do and try to cut in the great oh Jim Oh my Downey, God, the greatest. Deadpan is, I think, the best I've ever encountered. 100% the greatest deadpan in the history of show business. There's nothing better. When he does that... Jeremiah Lang, (laughs) Nancy Reagan's official biographer. When he does the thing about... So one of the setups we did on Newsmasters was a panel of white people talking about race and more congratulating themselves for talking about race than actually talking about race. So important to talk. And I think Billy does this long setup to Jim's character about... If you saw a young uh, black man walking towards you down the street. Uh, It's 2010. Uh, We have a black president. We have a black first lady. And they have two black children. Hypothetical. You're walking down the street uh, here in New York. It's late at night. 
you're well-dressed, maybe you've had a little uh, too much to drink. And at the end of the deserted street, um, a young black man mm. uh, approaches. What's going through your mind? Well, uh, two years ago, uh, you may get a little frightened, a little, uh, mm -hmm. uh, now we'd have to say it could be um, the President of the United States. It could be the President, but exactly. The odds, Does that frankly, change the your odds perception? Are, are very remote, but it could be. <laughs> oh my God, that show is so good, so brilliant, so ahead of its time. He also said, "Am I?" Billy said, "Am I the right person <laughs> to, to 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 conduct this? Being a white person, am I the ideal person to lead a conversation about race?" And Downey says, "Well, you'd be great for the white side. <laughs> well, you're good in this frank way that we're doing for the now. white side. You'd be great." <laughs> Like there's a side. And doesn't Dowdy also explicate, um, or is it you that sort of explicates his white heritage to find some? I started that. I started that by saying I was, you know, I was a real mixed bag, a real mutt. Right. Well, I mean, that's why it's important that we're having the talk here with a, a mixture of people. Mm -hmm. I am English with a little bit of Scandinavian, which, uh, right, uh, you know, probably gives me a slightly different mm -hmm. perspective. And some Scandinavian. <laughs> And I think Jim says something like Huguenot Dutch or something equally obscure. Quarter Scottish, uh, eighth Knickerbocker Dutch, mostly English. Okay, so from again, from a whole nother quadrant. Right. Knickerbocker yeah. Dutch, <laughs> uh, Scots-Irish. Okay, so from a whole, a whole different, different perspective uh, there. Yeah, oh my God. That was great. Well, thank you for all your sweet compliments. Let's we work will, together again. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this and making the time. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for coming on.